Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome, everybody, to the Heritage Foundation and to the Russell Kirk Lecture Series uh, hosted by the Fuller Institute and the Simon Center for American Studies. Uh, I'm Joseph Lacati. I'm a director of the Simon Center. And uh, it's a real privilege to be part of the Russell Kirk Lecture Series because of the amazing influence of Russell Kirk uh, as one of the most important conservative thinkers of the 20th century. We are proud to honor his legacy uh, here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, before I introduce the speaker, just some quick uh, housekeeping items. You want to have your microphones on mute. Uh, use the uh, the chat box over there for questions to the speaker as we get into the Q&A time. Uh, and this event will be viewable online, I think, within about 48 hours uh, after the event. So let me uh, say a few words about our speaker, Dr. David Rose, a professor of economics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He served as the uh, department director uh, of graduate studies and department chair over there. He received his PhD in economics from the University of Virginia. He's published numerous uh, scholarly articles. His work has been funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the Earhart Foundation, the John R. Templeton uh, Foundation. Dr. Rose also contributes to policy debates on topics ranging from social security, monetary policy, judicial philosophy, education reform, and healthcare reform. He does work on the evolution of firms and what he calls the new business ethics. I'd love to hear more about that, business ethics. Uh, he's now in his second term on the U.S. Uh, uh, Civil Rights Commission. His book, The Moral Foundation of Economic Behavior, Oxford University Press, was nominated uh, for the Hayek Book Prize. And his latest book, which is the subject of our, of our uh, talk today, is titled Why Culture Matters Most. Oxford University Press. I think this is an extremely important book, uh, given the political and cultural crisis that we now find ourselves in here in America. Think about it. The institutions that are supposed to hand down the great cultural inheritance of Western civilization, the civilization upon which the United States is based, are failing. They're failing miserably at their respective tasks in education, in media, in the arts, in business, in politics. It is hard to think of an important institution in America today that takes seriously the virtues and the ideals that make liberal democracy possible. One of the crucial points that Dr. Uh, Rose makes in his book is that a free market democracy requires a culture of trust, of trust, a high trust society. Many would argue though that this, is the one type of society that we do not now have. We don't seem to be educating the next generation intellectually, morally, spiritually, in ways that could build social trust. And this represents, I think, a profound cultural failure of the highest order, a failure of education. James Madison famously warned, without educated citizens, popular government is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. Thank you, Jimmy uh, Madison over there. Dr. Rose, uh, we are eager to hear from you about what we can do to avoid the tragedy of which Madison speaks. So let me invite Dr. Rose to join us now uh, online here on camera. And please join me in giving a warm heritage welcome to Dr. David Rose. 
Take it away, David. Well, thank you, Joe, for that uh, kind introduction. I, I really appreciate it. Given his tremendous uh, contributions to our understanding of the importance of culture to free societies, it's, it's a, a real privilege to give a Russell Kirk lecture. So before I begin, I'd also like to thank Ed Fulner for uh, putting this talk in motion. Well, culture is defined in a variety of ways. So let me start by making clear what I mean uh, by the word culture. Uh, in my work, culture pertains to knowledge transmitted across generations through learning rather than genes. Different societies transmit different forms of cultural knowledge, of course, but I contend that the way culture works is basically the same across all societies. Today, I'll start by talking about how culture works, and then I'll talk about the kind of cultural knowledge that is crucial for supporting mass flourishing. Not all societies convey this knowledge. I'll then argue that while conservatives frequently talk about the importance of culture, it's been the progressives who's actually been working the hardest to shape it. I'll conclude with a few remarks about what I regard as the next great conservative project, the revival of American civil culture. In 2013, Daniel Kahneman wrote a highly influential book titled Thinking Fast and Slow. And he argued that thinking takes two different forms. The first is what he called system one, which is fast, intuitive, and emotional in nature. The second he calls system two, which is slow, deliberative, and logical in nature, the kind of thinking we associate with science and careful decision-making. Kahneman suggested that we tend to do too much of the former and not enough of the latter, which causes all sorts of problems for society. It's a fair point. But I submit that system one thinking is actually an important part of the story of how culture works unlike anything else to make the good life possible. Since Kahneman doesn't account for culture in the manner I'm about to describe, it makes perfect sense that he'd worry about system one taking precedence over system two. Much of system one thinking is hardwired, but much of it is also the product of adults teaching beliefs and practices to their children as early as possible to effectively encode desired thinking and behavior. Here's an example of what I mean. Virtually every good Virtually everything that is good uh, is easier to achieve in a high-trust society. But if a high-trust society is what we want, then we don't want careful system two consideration of cost and benefits of cheating when opportunities to do so present themselves. What we want is system one thinking that takes individuals directly to the answer, no. I know this sounds a little creepy, but is it really so bad to live in a society where no one even considers harming other individuals or the community at large. I submit that when beliefs and practices are taught early in life, behavioral responses are effectively encoded through constructed rather than genetically inherited neural architecture. This shared neural architecture, which is constructed, is where culture lives. A great deal of work in neuroscience and development psychology has supported something first suggested by Aristotle and later recapitulated by St. Ignatius, which is that before the age of seven, learning is well described as a process of uncritical absorption. Much of what is learned at this time becomes the cognitive substrate of the subconscious mind. In adulthood, it guides thinking largely without individuals even realizing it. 
So childhood presents a small window of opportunity to construct neural architectures that mediate behavior in a way that is nearly as automatic as genetically encoded behavior. Beyond the age of seven, this window starts to close as learning increasingly switches to a mode of more conscious commitment to memory. But here's the big point. The opening and closing of this window allows the system two thinking of the adults in the present generation to shape the system one thinking of the adults of the next generation. This comports well with Aristotle's views on the importance of character. In societies that make heavy cultural investments in their children, this can produce lock-in, which can be good or bad, depending upon which kinds of beliefs and practices are learned. The truth is that everyone already knows this, which is why all societies work so hard to indoctrinate their children. I'm going to argue that thinking about culture as a mechanism for encoding behavior sheds new light on how Western societies have been able to create the thriving free market democracies that we now take for granted. We all know that the free market system and democratic voting rests on a variety of institutional foundations. We also know that many of these institutional foundations are very trust dependent. When judges can't be trusted to abide by the rule of law, for example, we lose confidence that contracts will be impartially enforced and we become less willing to work to acquire property. When we don't trust election procedures or poll workers, we become cynical about democracy. Low trust can therefore weaken, corrupt, and even destroy these and other important trust-dependent institutions. It follows that a thriving free market democracy ultimately requires the rich soil of a high trust society. Large group trust is an important part of a thriving society because Adam Smith was right about the power of economies of scale. Small group cooperation, which only requires small group trust, allows us to survive. But it takes large group cooperation for us to actually thrive. Not surprisingly, large group cooperation is most effective when supported by trust that works even in large group contexts. Unfortunately, large group trust can only be built on something we've learned because we haven't lived in large groups long enough for it to be baked in our genetic cake like small group trust is. The power of Adam Smith's argument is evidenced by the fact that large group cooperation is actually very common in nature. For example, there are many species of social insects and they dominate the planet by count and mass. But their harmonious large group cooperation is made possible by precise genetic coding of behavior on an if-then algorithmic basis. The sheer automaticity of their behavior makes the issue of trust irrelevant. Biologists like E.O. Wilson figured out long ago that genetically encoding behavior can circumvent the problem of individuals promoting their interest at the expense of the group. But this also makes adapting to changing circumstances impossible within any given generation. Juval Noah Harari pointed out in his excellent book, Sapiens, that what really makes humans so successful is our capacity for flexible cooperation. That is cooperation that can be rapidly adapted to changing circumstances. This brings us to a very important concept, flexible large group cooperation. Flexibility allows for rapid adaptation, 
large group context allows us to benefit from economies of scale. Problem is that flexible large group cooperation is very rare. The larger the group, the more our small group genes falter in controlling opportunism. Flexibility makes this even worse because it opens up many more doors to opportunism. Here's another way to think about it. There are many species like humans, orcas, and wolves that are good at flexible cooperation. And there are many species like humans, ants, and bees that are good at large group cooperation. But there is only one species that can do both, and it just so happens to be the one with the greatest capacity for culture. Unfortunately, even most human groups do not do this well. Flexible cooperation that is mediated by irrational decision-making has little prospect for success for either the individual or the group. So it's not surprising that since the ancient Greeks, it's been understood that rationality is indeed an important part of building a good person and a good society. The problem is that rationality is like fire. It can help us make sense of the world and make good decisions, but can also help us act as shrewd opportunists to promote our individual welfare at the expense of the common good. I believe the rise of human civilization is largely the story of humans improving their ability to channel rationality through moral beliefs so as to suppress it from being used to support opportunism, but otherwise leave it unconstrained. So how did humans actually do this? Well, when we lived in small groups, highly routine cultural practices address the problem of rational opportunism by requiring that precise patterns of behavior be followed. These patterns of behavior simply left no room for opportunism. The problem is that as groups grew to afford greater gains from specialization, they got more complicated. So practices had to become ever more detailed to get the job done. But the more precisely our behavior is prescribed, the more our minds get used to automatically searching for the appropriate then response when confronted with any given if circumstance. Independent thinking and acting is just a good way to have others wonder if you're an opportunist. This ends up taking all other responses off the table, which has the effect of leaving system two thinking on the shelf. This approach to bottling up rational opportunism therefore ends up bottling up rationality generally. I think some human societies were able to open the floodgates of flexible large group cooperation through the cultural transmission of, of moral beliefs that could precisely bottle up opportunism, but no more. If a society can bottle up opportunism, it doesn't have to fear rationality being put to work to benefit the individual at the expense of the common good. So perhaps institutions did not become more important than culture to unleash the modern world after all. Perhaps the evolution of Western moral beliefs began to suppress rational opportunism in a way that didn't suppress rationality generally. This produced high trust societies within which flexible large group cooperation exploded to produce mass flourishing. In my first book, I explain why if people possess moral beliefs, that produce a strong ethic of what I call duty-based moral restraint, they will always be trustworthy, even when there's no chance of being caught, situations that Robert Frank calls golden opportunities. 
trustworthiness is, of course, the antithesis of opportunism. Duty-based moral restraint is just the idea that one always obeys prohibitions against taking negative moral actions as a matter of principle, not because of the outcomes involved. Duty-based moral restraint therefore remains in effect in the face of greater good rationalizations, whereby means are justified by ends. I submit that Kant was on to something. To really trust someone or something, you have to be confident you will not end up being duped to become a means to some end, no matter how noble that end might be. So if you strongly believe it is your moral duty to never take negative moral actions, then you will never behave in an untrustworthy manner. That produces strong trust at the micro level. If a strong ethic of duty-based moral restraint exists in the vast majority of individuals, it will be rational to extend trust to strangers in all but the most exceptional of circumstances. This is trust at the macro level, what many call social trust, and it is the mother's milk of flexible large group cooperation. But since we've only lived in large groups for a short time, our genes have no reason to support traits that would effectively encode duty-based moral restraint. It can, however, be culturally encoded. Through early childhood instruction, we can construct neural architecture such that if any, if circumstance that involves a chance to benefit by being untrustworthy is presents itself, it's directly routed to the response, no. Something very important to note about duty-based moral restraint is that it does not precisely prescribe behavior. Instead, it precisely proscribes or prohibits behavior. The more precisely behavior is prescribed, the truer it is that for every if circumstance, a unique then action is required. The problem with that is it effectively redacts all other possible actions. But the more precisely behavior is proscribed or prohibited, the smaller is the portion of the action set that is redacted. This results in far more discretion falling under the individual's jurisdiction. Because of this, duty-based moral restraint effectuated through system one thinking ends up increasing the exercise of system two thinking by giving rationality more free space to roam and therefore more to do. All of this sounds too good to be true. So what's the catch? The catch is that no one would rationally choose to have moral beliefs that foreclose the ability to act on all future golden opportunities. Doing so would contradict the definition of rationality or the definition of a golden opportunity. To object by saying one might choose such belief for moral reasons is to employ circular reasoning. So how can societies deal with this rationality catch-22 problem? The answer is to exploit how culture works like nothing else can. Since moral beliefs must be learned each generation, the current generation of adults basically decides for the next what their moral beliefs will be. This effectively separates the decision to have certain kinds of moral beliefs from the consequences of having to abide by them. 
This circumvents the rationality catch-22 problem because society isn't depending on nearly all of its citizens to irrationally choose to adopt trust-producing moral beliefs for themselves. If duty-based moral restraint is drummed in early enough and often enough, then by the time an individual is old enough to fully appreciate the cost of never being able to behave in an untrustworthy way, her brain will have stopped wasting resources even considering such actions. So she isn't trustworthy because of enlightened self-interest or some great level of moral conviction. She's trustworthy mostly because she doesn't even consider being untrustworthy. This sounds a lot like Aristotelian virtue character manifested through Kahneman's System 1 thinking. We all know people who aren't even tempted to be untrustworthy, mostly because they don't even think about it. And the best societies are jammed with people like that. Humans use culture to encode a, gr a great deal of behavior. In some cases, beliefs like duty-based moral restraint produced high trust societies that support the trust-dependent institutions through which free market democracies function. In my view, duty-based moral restraint is one of the most precious gifts of Western civilization. But it evolves so slowly and we've lived with it for so long that to us, it's like water to fish. And of course, fish are the last to discover water. I promised I'd say a few things about the progressives and what we can do to learn from them. The progressives understood that to achieve their utopian vision, they needed power to engage in heavy redistribution. They also understood that this flew in the face of prevailing moral beliefs in the West, especially in America. Most Americans believe that while government power could be used to force citizens to pay for their fair share of public goods, it could not legitimately be used to coerce redistribution. So over a century ago, progressives began working to push moral thinking in a new direction, one more amenable to greater good rationalizations that could morally and therefore politically justify heavy redistribution. Slowly, this shifted our focus away from moral restraint, which is crucial for preserving freedom and stoking rationality. And it pushed it towards the promotion of social justice, which is crucial for justifying coerced redistribution and conformed behavior. Social trust has been falling ever since because it is from knowing that others and government will not morally rationalize using us as means to ends that we can trust both. Because the progressives understood the power of culture, they worked hard to get into control of K through 16 education. Time freed from no longer teaching about history and our intellectual inheritance from Western civilization is now put toward indoctrinating children in new ideas that stress the moral and political foundations of socialism. In doing so, they construct neural architecture that supports being a useful member of a state-controlled society, one that promises to provide care in return for liberty. The progressives are fond of saying that uttering the word culture is blowing a racist dog whistle. Meanwhile, they've been practicing Fabian acculturation to perfection. This is why they worry so much about school choice and stress state-sponsored pre-kindergarten education. Each successive American generation 
has a little less fidelity to duty-based moral restraint and a little more anti-capitalist and anti-American views. Progressives have been winning the long game. Meanwhile, what we've been doing isn't working. We make economic efficiency arguments in praise of the free market system while they denounce it on moral grounds. Well, morality trumps everything and no economic efficiency argument has ever beaten a moral one, nor will it ever in the future. To turn the tide, we need to make an affirmative moral case for the free market democracy. There is a strong moral case to be made, one rooted in many of the premises that progressives strongly endorse. But how best to make that case is a discussion for another day. But what I can say today is that there's nothing more important for the Heritage Foundation to do than to work to revive American civic culture by reviving civic education across the country. When I say this, conservatives say, sure, Dave, great idea, but right now we need to fill in the blank. Well, I've been hearing that for 30 years. Now more young adults than ever favor socialism over capitalism. It is time conservatives go beyond talking about the importance of culture and actually get into the game. And that concludes my uh, remarks. Dr. Rose, thank you for that really, really stimulating, challenging, provocative discussion. And uh, there's there are many, many questions I have. Uh, I want to remind everybody out there uh, in our studio audience uh, to uh, submit your questions into the question box, and we'll get to as many as we can in our remaining time. Uh, Dr. Rose, one of the, the phrases you used here repeatedly in the talk, duty-based moral restraint, right? Duty-based moral restraint. Uh, it seems to me, and and feel free to push back, it just seems to me that it, in many ways, this is near the heart of the struggle that we're, we're having right now in the United States. We've been having for decades as we try to battle the, the progressive leftist and let me say secular mindset. In other words, the idea of taking away the restraints on the individual, stripping away any kind of moral restraints, parameters. That seems to be part of the progressive project. It's not only enlisting uh, young people in a, in a social justice cause, but it's the whole idea of casting off the restraints. And I wonder what you might say about that, where you see that happening uh, perhaps uh, in, in really acute ways the release of restraints, and how, how should conservatives be thinking perhaps more strategically about that? Because it does seem to be close to the heart of your argument of, you know, more duty-based moral restraint is what we need. Well, we're having that fight, aren't we? Uh, we are. Uh, I basically have two uh, responses to that. Um, uh, in my first book, I discussed this issue uh, and I call the, the, the key idea to, to address your point here is uh, what I call moral detente. Um, if you are someone who really wants to do what you want to do, and of course, we all really want to do what we want to do, but you want to do it so badly that you're willing to violate what have been historic restraints, then you are someone who is going to have a natural affinity for moral beliefs that don't draw constraints with bright, bold lines. My, my father-in-law, uh, who uh, grew up in rural Arkansas, uh, had a great way of putting it when he was talking about raising children. He said, you know, Dave, when it comes to raising children, I believe 
in uh, just a few bold lines. Not a lot of rules, just a few, but they're drawn boldly. Now, this is yeah. the idea that there are restraints on your behavior. Uh, they're very strong. They're inviolate. But because we're regulating behavior in that way, not in terms of telling people what to do, but what not to do, we can actually have a society with very few of them. But if you want to do things that would violate our customary constraints, you are going to be someone who is eager to rationalize being able to do so because you want to think that all morality occurs on the same moral dimension. So how moral a person is, is determined by their moral behavior with positive moral acts being to the right of zero and negative moral acts being to the left of zero, acts of strong moral significance being large and absolute value. And then you trade positive against negative. This is the best way to rationalize being able to do whatever it is you want to do. So this is the world of moral detente, which is rising in our world today. Uh, thank you for that, sir. I've got a, a question here from uh, Jim, Dr. Jim Otison, one of our visiting scholars here at Heritage. His question is, what's the proper role of religion in fostering a culture that reflects duty-based moral restraint, the proper role of religion in fostering that, that, uh, that culture that you speak of? That's from Jim Otison, Dr. Dr. Otison. Uh, that, that's a great question. And uh, I believe uh, that the United States benefited tremendously from uh, the prevailing religious beliefs at the founding uh, of, of the country up until fairly recently, uh, because these beliefs were very consistent with duty-based moral restraint. Um, the interesting thing about religion is that I think if, if you look at religions, if you talk to imams and from Islam or rabbis from uh, Judaism, pretty much it doesn't matter across the board if you talk to them about duty-based moral restraint or the idea that moral restraint, a little softer idea is just simply that moral restraint is more important than moral advocacy because doing harm is a more morally significant thing than doing good. Uh, they almost all agree with you. So the problem really isn't that duty-based moral restraint is somehow uh, inconsistent with a lot of religions out there. The problem is it's an idea that's a little bit more refined than uh, most of the thinking in most of the religions. So sometimes it helps to simply refine an idea. I mean, it wasn't so long ago in this country, uh, the very same prevailing religions that produced strong duty-based moral restraint that we benefited from to produce a very high trust society that could sustain free market democracy, well, uh, a fair number of Americans were able to use those exact moral beliefs to justify racism in their mind and sure. to justify sure. slavery in particular. So sometimes uh, religion can give us a foundation, but that doesn't mean it addresses everything. And so I, I believe we can, we can, I'm kind of optimistic that as, as long as, uh, the idea of duty-based moral restraint is pushed out into the religious community. Almost all religions are likely to uh, advocate it in a more direct focused way, especially when they understand how crucial it is for supporting large group trust that can allow their societies to thrive. 
Yeah, I hear you, and I'm going to try to maybe anticipate what what a uh, what Dr. Otison may have in his mind as well as as a follow up is. Do you see a connection between an increasingly secular society, particularly in our institutions, and the lack of attention to duty based moral restraints? The the more secular you become, the less morally restrained you become. And certainly, that has been a theme throughout history among philosophers, theologians, even you know public statesmen down through the ages, the link between a more secular society and a less morally restrained society. What would be your, what would be your quick response to that if I'm anticipating Dr. Otis's perhaps comeback? Uh, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a good comeback. I think, it, I think that's right. I think the most important thing that religion does is it provides a narrative that gives people a great deal of incentive to strongly inculcate moral beliefs. Now, the problem is some religions want to inculcate moral beliefs that don't produce the kind of society that we in America enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so, but on the issue of duty-based moral restraint itself, though, um, I think the real issue is that the religion can pick this up and can run with it, but they got to know it. They got to know that there's a problem to be solved in order to yeah. appreciate the solution. Yeah, yeah, that's the crucial point, it seems. And, and I think probably perhaps the most provocative thing from my mind that you said at the end, or maybe at the beginning as well, conservatives have not quite grasped the gravity of the situation in reaching into the lives of young people, uh, Dr. Rose, it seems. And I think we'll pick up that theme again before we're done. I wanna take another question from our audience, Evelyn Gardette. If you could identify, Dr. Rose, one aspect of culture outside of the family, that can build up society in the way that you're talking about, what would it be? One aspect of culture outside of the family. Well, that's a, that's a question designed to be hard to answer because obviously <laughs> uh, one of the reasons why the family is so important is it provides, uh, and I talk about this extensively in the book about how uh, the structure of the family provides powerful incentives to inculcate duty-based moral restraint, uh, and, and that there's really no good substitute for it. I think, however, that historically religion has picked up much of that slack. Uh, and to some extent, K through 12 education did. The problem with K through 12 education isn't that it doesn't teach morality. The problem with K through 12 education is that it teaches a type of moral thinking yeah. That has more to do with providing moral justification for utopian views of the left yeah. than it does with producing consistent, trustworthy behavior by individual people. Yeah, wow. You know, Dr. Rose, in some ways, and you probably wouldn't put it in these terms, but you're really making a kind of a damning indictment in some ways of kind of where we are, uh, not just our, our progressive friends, but even our conservative friends, not thinking carefully enough about those those early crucial years in education. Here we all are wanting to see our kids back in school, you know, back in the public schools with the pandemic. But going back into those schools means going back into that cultural indoctrination, if I'm reading you correctly. Is that right? That's correct. And, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is that uh, in civic education, and I got in my end of my remarks, I said we need to revise civic education. And one of the things that's lacking in the way we taught civics before, before it was dropped from K through 16, uh, 
there wasn't much discussion of moral foundations or how economics uh, interacts with the civic society. That was all kind of left out. And I think the reason why it was left out is there was so much cultural inertia from intact families and from religion coming into that period that this was treated as something that we didn't even we didn't even make a decision to leave it out. It was just something that we uh, presumed would always be there, like the Rocky yeah, Mountain. I think that's but it's right. It's not true, and it is it is it what what has happened is the left has not been the least bit shy about entering into the moral space. Yes. I find it wildly ironic that people who spend so much time talking about following the science spend so much time making moral assertions, uh, saying that this is morally compelled or you shouldn't do this because it's immoral, and stating it as though on any particular policy position, uh, as though it's as self-evident as if you let go of an apple, it'll fall to the yes. ground. Yes, yes. What what do you think helps to explain then? Because you say you've you've been at this now for a couple a couple of three decades, trying to trying to raise the alarm in various uh, conservative circles or elsewhere. What what do you think explains the sort of lack of attention to this really crucial dimension of culture shaping this civic education, getting to to our young? I don't think there's a conservative uh, in the audience or outside this audience that would disagree with you. I think the problem is. The more successful a society is, and if you could lean a little closer to that, that mic, I think we're losing you a little bit. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Uh, the more uh, successful a society is, uh, in other words, the higher it climbs the mountain of, of, of achievement and high quality of life, uh, the smaller is the cost, and the harder it is to notice the cost ah. of backsliding. So we've been yeah. backsliding for a long time. But it's been a death by thousand cuts. I see. Now, however, I would say the last two years or so have should have shocked some people into reality. So it is time for us to take civic education seriously, to not uh, be agnostic about moral education, to get in the game. We have not been in the game. We've abdicated the game, and the progressives have filled the vacuum. Uh, with their own brand of moral teaching. Wow. So now we're seeing kind of the fruit of that abdication in a lot of ways. It seems to be your point, Dr. Rose. I got another question here in the chat box from Paul Laskow. Do you think there has been a decline in the quantity and quality of civic associations, uh, uh, which is contributing to the problem? A decline in the quantity and quality of civic associations as part of the problem. <clears throat> Uh, my good friend uh, Bob Putnam likes to make a big deal out of that uh, social culture, uh, sure. uh, social capital, um, and I, I, I think it's true. But I, I, I tend to think of it not as a cause, but more as an effect. Um, when we trust each other, uh, we're more likely to spend a lot of time together and do things together, and so on. The less we trust each other the more we tend to retreat into the groups within which trust is easily sustained. Yeah. And I think in the United States, you're seeing the rise of a kind of thoroughgoing tribalism. Yes. Uh, it's almost happening in real time. And if you, if you can go into neighborhoods and people who used to hang out with each other and easily get along, they had different uh, political views, but nobody really cared. But they only cared about whether the beer was cold and whether the barbecue was good. 
uh, and whether the kids were winning at T-ball. Yeah. That's what they cared about. But you can sense a tension that's there that wasn't there even just a couple years ago. So many of these kinds of endeavors that involve groups that are quite a bit larger than your closest friends and family, I think are being undermined by the reduction in large group trust that, again, is another thing that we take for granted because we've lived with it our whole lives. Yes. But I, I would hope that the rampant political tribalism that we're seeing today uh, will cause people to stop and, and, and think and maybe be willing to take a different direction. Wow, a real cultural wake-up call. I got another question here. Uh, Raphael Davidov, uh, the Frankfurt School has pushed a form of cultural Marxism through Western institutions, particularly educational ones. Do you think that the, uh, the Marxists will one day push for a form of religious or spiritual Marxism in the future? Uh, no, because they're already doing it in the present. If you listen to people uh, who are the most fervently left or the most fervently progressive, the way they speak, uh, the conviction with which uh, and the emotion with which they advance their positions is consistent with a kind of religious zealotry. Uh, it's already yeah. there. It's already happened. It's ironic <clears throat> that there is so much fervent uh, religiosity among people uh, whose champion felt that religion was the opiate of the masses. I'd say uh, he was right. Uh, the religion that is now dominating on the left has become the opiate of those masses. Mm. Uh, they are engaging in a great deal of intellectual laziness by simply handing off complex issues and treating them as simple one-step moral argument type issues. So for example, yes. <clears throat> should we have nationalized healthcare? Answer, yes. Why? Because healthcare is a right. Why? Because it would be immoral to not provide it. Well, that's pretty easy. Uh, we're done. There's, there's no discussion about yeah. the pluses or minuses of doing it in some other way or uh, having say, uh, maybe, maybe as a society, we should take care of each other, but why that couldn't be done through private organizations as, as documented so well by Tocqueville. Uh, no, we don't have any of those conversations. Yes. yes. So that's not that, that to me, we are already in that realm. It already yeah. is there. And the problem with that is that it has tremendous appeal to young people. Yes. Uh, and, and and so it gets very it's very difficult to undo later. Yes. If I could maybe rephrase it a bit, uh, a sort of bunt, clumsy, heavy handed moralizing that only seems to lead in one direction, which is the uh, the a larger, more intrusive nanny state, a paternalism. Uh, I, my, my, my friend, this, uh, social thinker, Oz Guinness, the phrase I think he uses is paternalism without a father. Is where we're is where we're headed with so much of the progressive left. I think also again perhaps linked to this secularizing tendency. If you don't have a deep source of me, uh, a religious transcendent source of meaning for your life, the way human beings seem to be wired is we're going to crave it. We're going to find it somewhere. Social justice, quote unquote, seems to be operating something like a like a cult. 
cult, if I can speak with my historian's hat on, it has the trappings of a, of a fervent religious cult, doesn't it? It's devotees, it's rituals, uh, it's dogma, and of course, the heresy, uh, identifying and punishing the heretics. Back to you, Dr. Rose, on that. Go ahead. Uh, it, it does have those trappings. I would add a, uh, an addendum to your point. Uh, it's also subject to positive feedback. When I do believe Viktor Frankl was one of the most perceptive people to ever live. He's right. Uh, we just cannot thrive as individuals or as a society without a sense of deep meaning. Yes. And when life gets easy, when the world is easy, and that's one of the big problems with America, we're so successful that we're able to produce a pretty easy life, uh, people start to lose a sense of meaning. Now, that sense of meaning was generated by the free market system in an organic way. If the way you get money, the way you live well, the way you make sure your children do well and go to the best schools, is that you work super hard so that they have more than others might have. That competition creates a kind of meaning for parents and families, and that meaning doesn't stop when the kids grow up. It, it continues. They feel the same way about their grandchildren and so on and so forth. But if you rig society, so it doesn't make any difference how hard you try uh, as a breadwinner, uh, or as uh, somebody who stays at home with the kids, it doesn't make any difference what you do because we're going to equalize everything at the end of the game. Then the meaning that would have come from the noble struggle to promote the welfare of your children whom you love more than life itself yes. has been sucked away. You're not relevant yes. anymore. Yes, yes, excellent point. You know, I, I can't help but think in part because I've been thinking about these authors uh, pretty intensely for the last few years, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and the Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, back to your point about duty-based moral restraint in that amazing story from Tolkien, uh, uh, Frodo is desperately trying not to be tempted by the ring of power, right, not to put it on his finger. So there's that restraint, that duty-based moral restraint, but there's something more than that too, isn't it? His, his great calling is not just to destroy the ring, it's it's to save Middle Earth, it's to save the Shire. So there's this beautiful uh, moral objective that he has, uh, and he's willing to sacrifice everything for it. This, how, how do you think conservatives maybe uh, can offer an alternative moral vision uh, to the ones, uh, the vision that the, the, the left is offering? Uh, social justice, whatever it is, we need to offer a compelling, it seems to me, alternative, uh, David, can I get you to speak about that in a, in a, in a, a remaining few minutes that we have? <clears throat> I think the biggest mistake of the 20th century was the equating of a safety net conception of government involvement uh, in solving social problems with social justice theory. Yeah. Social justice advocacy is a, ultimately about equalizing outcomes. If you talk to a social justice advocate, they'll tell you, oh no, it's about this, that, and all these other things, but all those other things tend to be already subsumed in our existing sense of justice. We, we don't need a new theory of justice in order to believe that it's unjust to have mechanisms that uh, 
don't give people due process. That's already been sorted out. There's no value added. The only thing that makes social justice theory different in an interesting way is its emphasis on justice as outcomes, particularly the more equally outcomes, the more just is the, is the system. I think that the one way to sort out this thinking in order to give young people enthusiasm for a conservative kind of position on this to, to supplant social justice theory is to explain to them that if you have a grand bargain in society where we say, look, in return for leaving the way the economy works alone, leave it alone. Do not try to manipulate it. Don't redistribute it. Don't do any of that stuff. In return for that, we will use a substantial portion of the money generated by such a rich society to provide for basic needs. This is not what social justice advocates want because the provision of basic needs is a very well-defined thing. You only drink so much water, you only eat so much food, you only need so much shelter, you only need so much health care. It's something that can be solved, and once it's solved, there's nothing more for them to do. And if there's nothing more for them to do, there's no meaning for them to have. Yeah. But you can reverse yeah. it and say, by working hard to promote the free market democracy, we can generate so many more resources that we can actually deal with real problems. If the problem of people feeling bad because they don't have as much as other people, that's a, a problem that's of dubious moral merit. It really is not that deep of a moral problem, and maybe not a moral problem at all. Uh, however, people suffering is a problem, and the alleviation of the suffering of others is a self-evident act of moral virtue. Sure. That's where we should focus our attention. And that's where the attention is focused in a thriving free market democracy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a fascinating and, and rich response. I, uh, when, you, when you describe where we are and how progressives have been so much better than conservatives at understanding the stakes, understanding culture and how to affect culture, I think that probably could discourage some, some people. To, to hear that and to understand it, to be aware of how much ground we have lost. Dr. Rose, can you think of perhaps whether it's historical examples or even right now, patches of light that can give us some reasons really to be hopeful for the capacity to push back against some of the, some of the worst uh, trends, impulses that we've, we've now seen that we're, that we're undergoing and facing? Do you have uh, some glimmers of hope for us here, examples either in the present or history? historically, where this approach that you're, you're describing, emphasis on civic education, can really make a difference on the ground? Uh, I can give you some examples of the present that are glimmers, but the problem is they are glimmers that actually cause more harm than good in the long run. Oh. Uh, increasingly, parents are opting out of public education. They are sending their kids to private schools where they have greater faith in the kind of uh, cultural knowledge your children will get in addition to what they'll get academically. Parents are also increasingly opting out of education uh, institutions and doing homeschooling for exactly the same reason. Sure. Within those contexts, there's, there's a tremendous variety of excellent curricular materials out there 
for homeschooling now and for private schools that can do a lot of what we're talking about. But what this is doing then is it's taking a group of people who already are doing fairly well in society and doubling down on the kind of cultural traits that's part of the explanation for their success and their family success and leaving the other people in society without any of that, even without the parents being in the same schools or associated with the parents in the same schools. So I see this as producing a kind of bimodalism, which is very unhealthy for our society. So in other words, through private action, we're seeing a movement in the direction of taking culture more seriously and, and being successful at it. But the groups that are most likely to do that are the groups that are already fairly successful. Meanwhile, the ones that are the least successful and have no choice but to go to public school are even more entrenched and even less. The difference between them and the others is going to grow rather than narrow. Yes. I see the dilemma. I think I would expect that probably some conservatives would say it doesn't have to be an either or. We need to create and sustain these havens of sanity of real moral formation, intellectual formation. We need to have those. We need to uh, 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 exponentially see them grow, invite as many people in as possible, school choice, et cetera. But also, I think maybe you're suggesting this, Dr. Rose, we do have to try to reclaim these existing institutions. Is that part of what you're you're really insisting upon? Go ahead. Right, I think there's there's two possible ways to go. One, if Bill Gates, uh, was listening to me right now. I actually wrote a letter to Bill Gates in the Wall Street Journal once. I, I have to believe he, he, he read that because uh, <laughs> it's the Wall Street Journal. Um, if Bill Gates and a few of his friends were listening to me right now, I would say, look, the best thing you can do with your money is to create a completely private voucher system. Hmm. Just forget about it. Let's just start to shift the culture of America in a direction that yeah. says, look, education is just too important to have government do it. We just, it's just, so we're just going to do it. Yeah. Really, really rich people are going to pool their money and then ordinary yeah. people are going to put some money in. There'll be some yeah. tuition for people that can pay, but we're just going to make sure everybody in the United States, no matter how poor, is going to get an outstanding education. We're tired of waiting. Yeah. You might say, well, that's terrible. We're wasting all that money. Well, if we start to move in that direction where we go so fast into truly privatizing education, political support for public education would fall apart. Yeah. But there's no need to take money from them. So that's one approach. And I I like that approach. And I think it's more credible than you might imagine. The other approach is to say, look, at at the state level, states can pass legislation that can mandate the teaching of civic education in public schools. They can do that. And some states have already done that to some extent and and have some pretty good uh, education along those lines. Florida does, Texas does, I'm sure a few others do. But in that case, you're just saying, look, we're we're not going to let you treat public education as your little plaything. We're just not gonna, we're not gonna concede the ground anymore. We're gonna get in the game and we're going to do it through legislation if we have to. Yes, well, uh, Dr. Rose, that sounds to me like a bracing call for leadership, for cultural leadership and political leadership. I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for the investment of time, the lecture, really stimulating and provocative. want to remind everybody there, 
you look you can check this uh, webinar out uh, 48 hours after uh, there's a questionnaire to fill out want to thank you again dr rose a terrific discussion my pleasure